Some of you didn't think I would show up after how Sunday's game went, correct? <laughs> I am no coward. If I'm going to take, you know, give, give people a hard time, I got to be able to take it as well. It was a good game. I am sad about the result, but it was a very good game. And I uh, also said I couldn't be here to teach on Sunday. If you didn't know, I got bronchitis or something. And so uh, my voice was kind of up and down. It was totally shot that day, which is great. That way I couldn't yell at the TV the whole time. <clears throat> but I definitely couldn't have taught uh, up here. I um, was between two different kinds of voice styles, very white, not very Manila, which I said, and the first gathering, which was very deep, um, and also sometimes my voice cracked and some people were like, hey, you're finally going through puberty, congratulations. So it was somewhere between <clears throat> those two, but I'm really, uh, really grateful for the team that we have, Fred did an excellent job, and if you haven't watched his message on Jesus and the Good Shepherd, you should do that, and I can't tell you how hard it is to preach someone else's notes. I only gave Fred, you know, about a day's notice because I was hoping to be able to teach, and it's very hard to take someone else's content and preach it and make it your own. So he did a very good job. And I'm grateful for the team of people we have, the worship leaders, uh, the sound people, camera, and everybody else who, you know, when I go down, they can just pick it up and, and do just fine. So I'm really, really grateful for that. And the other thing I want to talk about in terms of team is uh, students. So my, my son turned into a teenager uh, this year, so prayers, uh, welcome, send, send gifts and cards if you can, uh, give condolences. But um, one of the things we, we talk about is how challenging it is to raise the next generation. And LifePoint really cares about the next generation. We're all stewards, not only of our positions, but of our faith. And hopefully we want to hand it off to the next generation. And that's one of the ways that the church continues to not only survive, but to thrive. And so the well is one of the ways that we would like to do that at LifePoint. And our student director, Tyler, has put on a great uh, program for students. And so if you have a teenager or if your teenager has friends or if you just know of a teenager who really needs a jump start in their relationship with Jesus, that it was going to have a great time. They're going to be poured into by volunteers and adults who care for them. And they are going to drink from the well that never runs dry, which is why it's called the well. And so we highly recommend you do that. Cost will not be a barrier to anybody to go. So if you would like your teenager, their friends, or someone that you know, please contact us. Come and talk with Tyler. If you're wondering where he's sitting, he's right over there. And then you can do that. We would love for you to send your teenager to that. So in this series that we have been in, uh, today I want to talk about Jesus, the true vine. And if you didn't know, we're in this massive series that is year long. We cooked it off last May, and we're going until this May. And we're in this series called A Year in the Bible. And we've been going through it thematically. We haven't done every verse. We haven't done every chapter. Uh, but we pretty much hit upon uh, every book. And, and so in this time between January and March, we decided to pause and do this very large series within a larger series called 90, if that's not confusing enough. And the reason we did it, uh, I called it 90, is because between January 1st and March 30th, which is the day we would celebrate as Jesus being laid in the tomb, is 90 days. And that was the time frame that people had to make a decision. On that Saturday, there were no Christians. On Good Friday, there were no Christians. It is only Sunday morning when Jesus pops out of the tomb and greets the women and appears to his disciples, the people who had the opportunity for the first time to decide whether or not they wanted to follow this man who had just come back from the dead. And so we wanted to invite you for 90 days to embark on a transformative journey with us. We hope that you would pray every day that God would show up in your life, that you would become closer to Jesus. And so we wanted to spend three months talking about the life of Jesus. In the first month, we talked about what people said about Jesus. People have all sorts of opinions about him still today. 
day. Some people think he's Lord. Some people think he's lunatic. Some people think he's a liar. Some people think he's just a good teacher. That he didn't exist. That he's just a rabbi. That he's just one of the faces of many of uh, the different types of religions in this world. And so we wanted to hear what people had to say about him in the first century. And then the second month, in the month of February, the month we're in now, is we wanted to hear what Jesus had to say about himself. What does he actually say about himself? And we've been going through most of the things that John has said, John the gospel writer, in the gospel writer of John. And what Jesus says about himself is very, very fascinating. And today we're going to take a look at the seventh saying of the I am sayings of the gospel of John. There are seven of them, and John is giving us the last of Jesus's I am sayings. And he talks about himself as the true vine. A vine or a tree or a branch would have been symbolism that the first century readers would have totally picked up on. If you opened up the Bible on the first page and the last page, you've got the tree of life. You've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the first couple uh, pages of the Bible. You have the fact that Abraham stood under the oaks of memory as he welcomed three divine beings. One of them may have been God himself or an angel representative of God. Joseph, in the family line of Jesus, was called a tree that was fruitful. Jesus himself was from a town called Nazareth. Nazareth, if you go there today, the Hebrew word for Nazareth is Netzer, which means branch. You, you could have seen in Jesus' time Herod's temple. That outside of Herod's temple were these golden weaves and vines. They would have gotten the, the idea that Jesus is trying to talk about. We're called oaks of righteousness. Jesus was said to be crucified up on a tree. Like this, this analogy of trees and vines and branches in life would have been very apparent to Jesus's audience. So in John chapter 15, Jesus is starting to do some of his farewell discourses, which means he says right before this that the ruler of the world is coming. And he means Satan, and Satan is going to, he thinks, orchestrate the death of Jesus when all along Jesus is the one orchestrating everything. And But he realizes towards the end of his life that he has to give directions, and he gets to the end of his life, and he's starts to become very serious about what his mission entails. Last week, we talked about Jesus as the good shepherd. It's an easy one for people to really like. It's an easy one for kids to like because Jesus is shown as this compassionate, life-giving, sacrificial shepherd that says, I will leave everything and I will lay down my life. And it's something we all love in terms of imagery. This is not one that most people, even though we need to hear this truth, most people associate with Jesus because he's a little harsh. And some of the words that Jesus is going to say, you're not going to like today. And if you don't like them, it may tell you a little bit about your relationship with Jesus. You may not like me a little bit today because I am going to quote from him and I'm going to give you some challenges that are going to make you severely uncomfortable. No one left. That's a good sign. Okay. So John 15. So several people online just logged off. They're like, nope, not doing that. Okay. If you're watching us online, thank you so much for joining us. If you're watching this later on, we hope this is helpful to you. So in John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Now, if you are a gardening person, you're going to totally dork out today. It's going to be great. You're like, yes, I've been looking for these analogies for a long time. He says, every branch 
in me that did not produce fruit, he, my father, the gardener, removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it would produce more fruit. Now, if you've ever done any version of this, you know what this is like. You can't just let a tree grow wild. I have a, um, an apricot tree in my backyard. I didn't know it was an apricot tree until one day it actually bloomed apricots. And I was like, that's kind of cool. And then they started falling on the ground and rotting. Oh, it was so bad. But if we were to pruned it, and if you would have ever done any gardening or tried to grow food, at your house, you realize you just can't let everything grow. You have to prune so life goes to just a few amount of places and those fruit, that fruit can get, become bigger. So Jesus uses this as an analogy. He says, you are already clean, just in case his hearers, especially his disciples, and he's talking primarily to his disciples. But by way of us reading this, and even by some of the language that Jesus will use, we are inheriting what Jesus is about to talk about today. He says, you have been clean because of the words I have spoken to you. And he says, remain in me as I remain in you. And then he continues to carry on this analogy of a branch. He says, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I mean, he will essentially say, in just a minute, there's nothing that you can do <laughs> apart from me. A fruit can't do anything unless it's attached to the trunk, unless it's attached to the life-giving resource that is Jesus himself. Now, I want to make a little bit of a pivot, pivot here and say the sentence, you know, machines, programs, and processes, and systems can all produce results and effectiveness. This isn't quite what Jesus means. <coughs> Excuse me. We talked a little bit about leadership earlier. You know, I'm a kind of a guy who is always trying to be effective. Like you, I have the same amount of time as you do. No one, no one gets more time. And I'm trying to be effective in the ways that uh, God has given me with the time and the resources and everything that I have. And so I do everything from when I'm trying to do a task, I set myself a timer. I use a tomato timer, it's Pomodoro, and it's, you set 25 minutes, you do it, and then you move on to something else, which gives me a finite amount of effectiveness. And I have to be as effective as I can with that time. We have AI bots in places that use AI and computer-generated software. Software, um, and opinions and all that sort of stuff to help us do work. There are all sorts of ways, computers and systems and AI and all that sort of stuff can help us be more effective. I'm always looking for a way to be more effective. But that's not what Jesus is getting at. He's not just talking about effectiveness. He's not just talking about when you produce fruit, it will produce something in life. He's talking about life itself. We could say it this way, only something living can produce more life. This is what Jesus is talking about. Ultimately, life in him, life eternally, but also life right here and right now. And when Jesus uses the analogy of fruit, he's sending a direct challenge to every person who is going to claim to be his disciples. Now, if you have claimed to be a Christian, claimed yourself as that title, tell people that you have claimed not just to attend church on a Sunday, but to be a disciple of a first century Jew named Jesus who claimed to be God, who said his father in heaven is the ultimate gardener. You have committed to that. So this message is for you. So here's what Jesus does in terms of talking about those who are his disciples and uses the analogy of fruit. He says it in a couple different ways, some of which are a bit painful. So here's what he said. We can put these three up there. He says, first of all, if you have no fruit, you have no use. No use to God. And it's a harsh reality. It's a harsh way of Jesus talking about people who claim to follow him. He says, if you bear no fruit in your life, 
you are no use to God. He's going to get a little bit more harsh than that in just a second. He says, if you have some fruit in your life, and I'll explain what fruit is in a few minutes, then you have some potential. We'll see how this goes. Sometimes when people become a Christian, they change at least a little bit immediately. People can see that there is a change. But unless it happens for the long term, there's just some potential there. You don't know exactly how their lives are going to go. And maybe you don't know how your life dedicated to Jesus is going to go. And then he said, some people have more fruit than others. Some people have showcased their life with Jesus in such a way that others really take notice and they go, man, their faith is greater than mine, or they just seem to be like a super Christian, or maybe they just feel like one of those people who really has taken Jesus' words seriously, and they're more focused. And that, you would think, would be good, but that is not the end game. These are almost three levels, and all of these levels fall short of what Jesus is truly asking his disciples to become. So if you have no fruit, you are no use to God. If you have some fruit, you might have some potential. We'll see that works. If you have more fruit, you've you've intentionally focused your life, but you haven't given everything. So Jesus continues in John chapter 15, verses 5 to 8. He says this, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And the one, excuse me, who remains in me, and I in him, produces much fruit. That's the goal. A lot of fruit. Because you can do nothing without me. You know, Jesus was never and has never been a middle-of-the-road kind of guy. He always says, it is everything or it is nothing. He has always been extreme in this way, shape, or form. And that's why some people love him. Because they go, yes, there's nothing in my life so good as you. You get it all because you have given it all. But it's also the reason that so many people will not follow him. Because they say, look, I'm fine giving you a little bit of my money. Fine, I'll tithe a little bit. I'm fine volunteering once or twice. Fine. I'm fine going to church occasionally. But this portion of my life, that one's just for me. You cannot have it that way. So if anyone does not remain in me, and this is maybe a a harsh reality, he's thrown aside like a branch and he withers. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. You know, Jesus is not being Hallmark Jesus here. He's not being kind, cuddly, good shepherd Jesus that you see in rendered images of him holding a sheep. He's the king of the universe here who says, if you do not abide in me and if you do not bear fruit, guess what happens to you? You are cut off and you die on the ground. And you know the only reason that that is useful is to be burned in the fire as firewood is kindling. And people are like, thanks, Jesus. (laughs) So encouraging. I appreciate this. And maybe Jesus is using his analogy to help us understand what hell is going to be like. I mean, hell's a real place. It's a real... Um, cutting off of our relationship between God and us. It's called a weeping and gnashing of teeth. People are suffering there. Maybe that's what he means. He could be. But he definitely means that if we do not remain in him, we're dead. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. You know, when people read this sentence, they go, that's not true. Show of hands. Just real quick, I don't ask you to do this very often. Show of hands. Have you got, who here has gotten everything that they've prayed for? And zero. Okay. 
So how do we take this seriously, right? I mean, Jesus says, ask for whatever. And the, the problem is, is that sometimes when people teach on a passage like this, they say that God really wants to give them what they want, the desires of their heart. That's not true. Because elsewhere in Scripture says, out of your heart are the desires of wickedness and terribleness. You cannot trust your heart. That's not where your desires should come from. They should come from God. So how can Jesus say this? Well, the key word here is ever you want in my name, Right? I mean, this is not what we get. You, whatever you want, you'll get. This is what some people think that this verse means. And it's not. You don't have a Corvette, or if you're a Ford person like me, a Mustang. You didn't get the person you thought you would marry. You got someone better, hopefully. You didn't get the money that you really wanted. The person that you asked to be healed didn't get healed. Maybe the person that you really wanted God to, to heal and get out of the hospital, they died. You've asked him for things, and he has not given you what you wanted. Now, some of you are old. I know. Sorry. Got to bring it up. And the reason I bring this up is that you've seen more winters than the rest of us. And the reason that is so impactful is that you have a perspective and an experience that people who are younger do not have. I don't know where I'm at. I'm 40. It's kind of old, kind of young, depending on where you got. But I'm talking to people who are older than myself. And this is a semi-rhetorical question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Because many of you who have seen lots of winters, some of you are tired, some of you are wealthy, some of you have traveled, some of you have done almost everything in your life that you ever wanted to do. So let me ask this one very simple question. Does any of that truly satisfy? And almost overwhelmingly, any, any rich, wealthy, traveling person that I've ever talked to have said it's been great. But ultimately, there's something else. Ultimately, it does not satisfy. And the reason I bring that up is that if God gave you the desires of your heart, they will always fall short. You will never be satisfied. That's why God doesn't give you the desires of your heart. And that's why Jesus doesn't say that you get what you want. What he says is when you ask for things in my name, you'll get the desires of me. We can say it this way. Tim Keller, this is a great quote. I love this quote by him. It says, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. And if this is a complicated way of thinking about it, think about it this way. If God gave you the desire of your heart, does that make you closer to God or further away? Because if the desire of your heart is not God, it will always lead you away from him. Always. And God knows that if, he, or you, if you knew everything that God knows, you would understand that if you got the desires of your heart, it would always lead you away from him. But if you had the heart of God, you would pray and ask for the things that God would have you ask for. Does that make sense? So this is the reason that Jesus says to remain in him, is because when you remain in the trunk with the vine, with the branches, you begin to want the things that Jesus wants. And what does Jesus want? It's a great question. Thank you for asking. So here's what he says next. He says, my father is glorified in this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. There is an interesting word here, proof. There is something in our faith that shows God that we are actually willing, able, and desire to be his disciples. And the proof in that is the fruit that you and I bear. 
Now, fruit here is, it can be in lots of different things. It could be, it's, uh, as Pastor Fred talked about last week, it's often an inner transformation. You don't just say kind words, you become a kind person. You don't just have compassion for others, you ooze with compassion for humanity. It's not because you have to give, but you desire to give because those resources are God's. It's not because you want to use your gifts for others, it's because you desire to do it because God has placed that upon you. What he's essentially saying is that you, you'll know and more importantly, God will know that we are his disciples because you will have much fruit. We could say it this way. A lot of fruit in your life is a lot of evidence that you're actually a true disciple of Jesus Christ, which begs the implication, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ and think you are. And Jesus says this. He says, remember, you did not choose me. I chose you. And he's talking to his disciples, I think, primarily. He says, but I appointed you to produce fruit. Now, Jesus is going to leave here soon. He's going to be crucified. He's handing off the keys to the kingdom to his disciples, by extension, you and I. And he says, I appointed you to produce fruit so that your fruit should remain. You know, anytime the Bible says more than something more than twice, we should pay attention. And you know how many times Jesus says to remain in me in this scripture? Eleven. Eleven times. It's so important. He says, you must stay so attached to me because one, you can't do anything. Two, you will never produce much fruit without me. And three, you have to be on the lookout because those who will not produce fruit, I cut off. I cut them off. And he says, I chose you. You did not choose me because I want your fruit to remain. The same root word that is used 11 times in the Greek for Jesus to talk about remaining in himself is now used and transferred to the disciples to say, your fruit will remain too. Because Jesus is saying, I will always be with you to the very end of the age, but I will not always be physically present. And my people will be physically present in this world. And so your fruit now needs to remain. So whatever you ask for, in, ask the Father, in my name, your desires are transferred to God's desires, you will get. So let me ask this question. This is the heart. This is the whole reason that we're here today. So who, who is this fruit for? If it's an inward transformation to you, if it's a spiritual gift, there are lots of ways to talk about what fruit is. But it is an evidence in your life that you are truly a disciple of Jesus Christ and you have given up everything for him and everything in your life is geared towards him and his way and his will. All of that is fruit for his purpose. Who is it for? If you are a Christian, your fruit is not for you. It's not for you. You know, if you've ever seen any sort of fruit tree, an apple tree, an orange tree, a berry bush, they don't cannibalize themselves. The reason they produce fruit is so someone else can come up and take from that and say, thank you. Someone else can get sustenance and meaning and life from it. A tree bears fruit and disciples of Jesus bears fruit because someday someone else will come along and take from your tree. And what if someone comes to your tree and you are barren of fruit? You have no fruit to give to someone else. You have no life to give to someone else. You're no use to God. You know, LifePoint's mission is this. You know, we, we want to help as many people as possible know and love God most so they can know themselves and others best. We believe both knowledge and love work together. 
If you know someone but you don't love them, it's superficial. If you love them and you don't actually know them, it's fake. You need both knowledge and love. And we, we primarily want you to know and love God most, above all else. And we believe that when that happens, you can finally understand yourself. You can know and love yourself. You know how God has wired you, how he's gifted you. And you can finally love yourself because you know, I love myself because God loves me. There's an epidemic in this country about people who want to commit suicide because they think they have no value. And they're incredibly valuable to God. That's why you love yourself first. And all sorts of people, when we first came up with this, were like, isn't it love God and love people? I was like, if you can't love yourself, you will never love someone else in a true way. It will always be a superficial movement of God's love away from yourself because if you don't really think that you are accepted and loved by him, you won't believe that about other people too. So you can know and love yourself best and then you turn and you look to someone else and you say, how do I know and love them best? Knowing them means you know how to help. Loving them means you are willing to help. And we'll talk about some next steps, but I want to just talk about the big one, today's next steps. We hope you'll take your next step so you can be ready when someone you know and love takes their first. Everyone has a person in your life. I challenge you to challenge me on this. Everyone has a person in your life, if you are a Christian, that if you received a text message or a call, and if they called you up and said, I want to make your God my God, I want to make your church my church, I want to make your faith my faith, what would you give to the person in your love and in your life to call you and tell you that? You would give anything. It's your son, it's your brother, it's your mom, it's your dad, it's your neighbor, it's your coworker. it's some combination of those. But someone in your life somewhere, if they picked up the phone and they said, man, I just really want to make your God my God. I really want to have a faith like you do. I want to go to church and you've been praying and thinking about them forever. What would you give? There is no amount of money and time and effort that you would not sacrifice to take that phone call or to receive that text message. The challenge is always going to be, are you ready to have that conversation? And for many of you, you're not. And the reason for that is that you have not continued to take your next steps in Jesus. You have not done that. You know, we've talked about plants, and maybe you've tuned out, but a different way to think about this is a gym membership. You ever known someone who talks about their gym membership and you look them up and down, you're like, you don't look like you go to the gym. You don't do that. You don't look like you have a gym membership. You look like you have a Costco membership. I can see that one. <laughs> but you don't have a gym membership. And the reason that is so apparent is because when someone goes to the gym, you're just like, you're yoked, man or woman. And you can tell they don't have to say anything because it's totally apparent that they have used their membership in the gym. Why? Why is it, as Christians, that there are all sorts of questions as whether or not we live for Jesus? Or do we just have the card? When someone comes up to us, do they go, there is something different about you. The way you talk, the way you live, your compassion, the way you take care of your neighbors and your family and stuff like that. I don't have to ask if you're a Christian. I know that you are. And you should run the other direction when people who come up to you and claim, I am a Christian. You got to tell me that maybe you're not. And maybe that's too bold and too harsh. You got to take that with Jesus, because it's essentially what he's saying. If you bear no fruit, and you do not use your gifts, and your finances, and your times, and your relationship, and your job, 
and everything that you have, you will be cut off. You will die and you will be no use to God. That's what he says. So now that we're all encouraged, I'm going to give you four ways to avoid that. Because there are ways to make sure you do not fall into that category. And church, to be honest, there are some of you here who fall into that category. You've been attending for years and you've never volunteered. I know because I've had conversations with you in the lobby. No one's going to talk with me in the lobby afterwards. It's going to be great. And there are people that I've seen for years. I've been here five years. And all sorts of challenges have happened. There are people who have said, when are you going to get in a group? And they laugh and they pat me on the back and they say good message and they leave. And it breaks my heart. I don't want to guilt and shame anybody, but it's so challenging for me to go, you come all the time, you hear the message, you hear what Jesus is saying, and you've done nothing. When will you? Now, to be completely fair, there is a time in your life that you just need to come and attend. There's a time in your life that you just need to come and listen. There's a time in your life that you need to know what you're saying yes to. I am totally for that. In fact, I might be really skeptical if you jump into too much too soon. But for the rest of you who've been coming for years and who have been Christ followers from years, you're running the risk of being no use to God. And it's time to step up. So let me give you four ways to do that. Next steps you can take today. First one is just to join a group to connect with and develop friendships. Maybe it's as simple as calling up the church and be like, everyone kind of hates my guts. Can you give me some friends? Or, and to be serious for a moment, I don't know how some of you get through life without a small group. I don't. Because life is challenging, parenting is hard, finances are tight, life is expensive, people die, people get sick, and you have a need to call someone and talk with someone who is going to point you and hold you accountable and pray for you. And some of you do not have a group of people to do that with, and I don't know how you live. I don't. It's hard for me. And I'm ingrained in the church. I've got people who know and love and care for me and pray for me, and it is so difficult. So I don't know how you do it. And maybe the thing is, you're just coasting through life. You're just getting through it. You're not really living. And I'm going to ask you, you in a group? And just as a pastor thing, I know I'm going over. I apologize. You know, when people come up and they need help, you know what my number one question is? Are you in a group? Hey, I could really use some financial help. I could really use some prayer. I could really use some come, someone to come over and do my lawn work. I'd really, I was like, my number one question is, do you have people in your life who, who do that? who would be willing. Don't call up the church and ask someone on staff to do it because you could have a group of people around you who love and care for you who would raise their hand first. Number two, join a team that use your gifts for the benefit of others. You know, we talked about things like the well. You can see that there are worship team members up here. There are people who uh, run the sound. There are people who greet when you come in. And there's some of you I've seen walk through the doors for years, and I know you have a spiritual gift. And you just have chosen not to use it. And you are robbing God and the church and yourself of the potential to do something. How ironic is this? I took a public speaking class in college, hated it. So hated it. And now I get to appear to do it. It's so super awkward, right? And I finally just said yes, not because I have a particular gift, but because God had put that in me. I was like, I, I should use this. Otherwise, I'm robbing God of this. Don't tell me you can't open a door. Don't tell me you can't invest in a student's life. Don't tell me you can't pray for someone, that you can't learn a new skill, 
that you don't have something to give back to God. Don't tell me you can come every Sunday and never give back to God and feel okay with your faith. You can't. Or if you do, you are not really a disciple of Jesus. I'm sorry to say it. Number three, become a growing giver and invest in what God's doing. It's always awkward to talk about finances in church. I totally get that. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But Jesus used financial analogies more than anything else in a literal sense and metaphorical sense. He said the number one way that Satan will get into your heart is through money and stuff. And the number one way to make sure that never happens in your life is to give it back to God that entrusted you with it in the first place. You know what we don't do? We don't give ourselves raises. We don't go buy a bunch of shiny tools. We go out and we say, how can we use this to better our community and the people around us? How can we provide the gospel in this valley and beyond with the resources that people have entrusted us with? We take that so seriously. And so you can know, because we have family meetings and we have ways to talk about it, then when you give to us, we will use it for the gospel in this valley. And number four is to get baptized, to show God and others who you belong to. There are lots of things you can do in private. Baptism is not one of them. Baptism is meant to be a public display of your affection and desire to follow God. You die when you get baptized. It's a metaphor of when Jesus is being placed in the tomb and he comes back to new life. And when you get baptized, your life should look different. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to talk about how a majority of you, at least my belief, actually should get baptized again because the manner in which you got baptized, the Jesus you said yes to, and the way in which you've committed your faith is not biblical. And the reason I say this is because Easter is coming up and baptisms is one of the ways we showcase that we are disciples of Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, I know this has been a tough message and Jesus has never pulled any punches. And we so appreciate that about him. And we also acknowledge how challenging it is. It is so hard for us to give all of our life to you. It is not easy. It's not something we wake up one day and just flip a switch and everything belongs to you. It is a hard, long road that is worth it at the end. Lord, just convict us in our hearts and in our spirits to volunteer for a team, to join a group, to give the resources that you've given us, to continue to take our next step, to get baptized in your name, and to do anything else that you require. Because you tell us whatever we ask for in your name will be given to us. Help us know your name and know what to ask for. Help us produce fruit for our neighbors, our family, our friends, and anybody who comes to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for putting up with me today. I uh, appreciate it. Next week, we're going to talk about Jesus' favorite title for himself, Jesus, Son of Man. You are already blessed in Christ. Have a great Sunday. Thank you.